We're taking a week off. Enjoy this reprise show and check our website for an archive of all of our previous shows. Welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Dr. Scott Stonington is a medical and cultural anthropologist and an internist. He studies decision-making at the end of life in Thailand, spent many years accompanying Thai patients at the end of life, and in particular, trying to understand pain, suffering, and the role of pain medications from these patients' point of view. Dr. Stonington also studies medical epistemology in the United States, specifically looking at how health practitioners decide what constitutes true and or useful knowledge and how this affects patients. Quick note that the day we recorded the show, I was still recovering from an upper respiratory infection. You can hear me coughing, which is distracting, and I sound awful, so I apologize about that. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us wherever you listen and share us on social media with your friends and colleagues, and thanks for listening. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. You're so welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your background and your research? Yeah, so um, I'm jointly trained in medicine. I'm an in- and primary care doctor, and I also do inpatient internal medicine. Um, but I'm also trained as an anthropologist, uh, and I got my PhD as part of a joint program at UC San Francisco, UC Berkeley. Um, and it's an unusual combination of things to do. In fact, at the time I did it, nobody was really doing it, and there was a small list of people who did it. And now it has be- suddenly become much more popular, and there are these programs all over the country. And I think some of that is because, the unlike basic science PhDs, anthropology work is really very close to clinical work. It's about gathering people's stories. It's about understanding how people's social worlds are put together and what their lives are like outside of the clinic. Um, And I think that most clinicians would identify with the fact that um, all of our medical algorithms at some point become routine, but it's people's social lives that get in the way and or (laughs) don't get in the way every day in our clinic. And so um, it's a combination that I think is powerful and people are wanting to train in both more and more. Yeah. Um, and then my own field work is actually in Thailand, um, and that came about because Thailand is a, just an interesting place in a lot of ways that has puts it in the middle of all of these medical-oriented conversations around the globe. Um, it's a middle-income country, and so it's sort of partway between all of the concerns of being a really poor place with lots of infectious disease, et cetera, um, and all of the problems and benefits that come with developing really high-tech medicine. Um, and it had, they have universal health care, which is just a fascinating thing because there aren't many places that um, middle-income countries that have been able to do that. So um, my work in Thailand is a lot of it is about looking in Thailand for insights about um, things that are current conversations all over the globe. So that's just a quick overview of my, my, my research world. Okay. A common theme that has come out in a lot of your research that I've looked at is pain. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, it's an interesting thing to go far away 
and learn things and then come back and have a changed lens for viewing how to deal with problems. It's not something I exactly expected to get out of um, living in Thailand and doing practicing medicine there and seeing how medicine is done. And so it wasn't really until I got back and started and did my medical residency and started practicing medicine that I noticed that there were certain things that I was doing so differently from my colleagues. And one of those was pain medicine. Um, And so I'll give you a little background about how that all started for me. Um, Part of it was that in medical school, I got very interested in palliative care um, because I just enjoyed taking care of people in that very precarious space in their lives. So I went to Thailand to study how people um, manage the end of life. And my study was that I wrote the end of life histories of um, a bunch of uh, of a bunch of patients who were at the end who had um, um, terminal diagnoses, and I met them in the hospital and followed them home and accompanied them through the rest of their end of life and wrote their stories. And I noticed that while I was there, every time I was on the wards with these patients, I was asking all the time about pain management. Uh, And to me, it just seemed like a very natural thing to be concerned about at end of life. And I was on rounds with uh, a bunch of clinicians, and at at one point, one of the surgeons, actually, that I had been spending a lot of time with who was taking care of a lot of the cancer patients said, "Um, why are you always asking about pain management? all these patients are doing fine. They're all tolerating their pain well. Mm. Um, and to me, they were all in, in stage cancer, and they were getting surgery, and it seemed like really painful stuff was going on, and there weren't a lot of narcotic pain medicines being used. Um, and and he said, and so I said, I said all of that out loud to him, and he said, what's with you Americans in comfort? Do you think everything should be easy? This is dying we're talking about here. These people are dying. And everybody on the team laughed, you know, because making fun of Americans is always fun. Um, But he then said something that I thought was really interesting. He said, the global trend that we're hearing from the WHO and from um, medical journals is to have patients rate their pain on a scale from zero to ten. And he said, that just doesn't really fit here because we don't think of um, getting to zero out of 10 pain as a goal that makes any sense or is even in alignment with reality in any meaningful way. So Buddhism, you know, and, and in this context in Thailand, people often invoke sort of doctrinal Buddhism to teach the foreigner about how dumb they are about certain things. So <laughs> in Buddhism, you know, the core teachings of Buddhism are that pain is a part of, that suffering is a part of everything, and that pain is a part of everything. And I can talk about the difference between those two in a moment. But um, he said that if your goal is to get to zero out of, out of ten, you're already addicted before you've ever reached for a thing outside of yourself to try to make that happen. Because that's not how life is. There is no such thing as zero out of ten. Um, and so I was so struck by that because it was a, uh, A, it was a very different relationship to pain in the idea that pain was something that needed to be incorporated into life and I learned much later that 
that that was way more dramatic there, that it was something that needed to be befriended and loved and taken care of, just like people felt that way about their tumors, that their tumors needed to be taken care of and loved. And this sort of hate-filled fighting strategy around medicine was something that generated more suffering rather than less suffering. Mm. So, A, it was that pain needed to be incorporated into life, but also, B, it was this kind of disconnecting the idea of addiction from these things that cause addiction. So, if I had to imagine how we talk about addiction in the West, it's that there are these evil substances like morphine, like oxycodone, that um, are so awesome when you take them that they that you'll do anything to have them again, or even more like they have these seductive powers that are whispering at you and you need to have this kind of stoic resistance to them because they want to pull you into their guilely ways. Um, and that wasn't part of this logic at all. The logic that he was ta- talking about was that people, ha- that pain is a thing, and it's just trying to deny that fact and run away from it that is the addiction. And it doesn't matter what you reach for if it's oxycodone or your cell phone or um, anything that you're using to ignore the truth of things, which is that there is is pain and suffering out there. Um, so I, you know, those were part of my interviews, but it wasn't until I got back to the U.S. that I started to realize I had really integrated that way of thinking about things and that it was really changing how I was taking care of patients. And it was changing it in a couple ways. One um, was that we, in Western medicine, we tend to sort forms of suffering into like real and unreal, into mm-hmm. physical and spiritual or into like personality and tolerance and those sorts of things. <clears throat> so that a person comes in and there's this question, do they have real pain? And if they have real pain, then maybe I'll prescribe them a certain kind of medicine. And if it's not, then maybe there's this dangerous part of that pain that, that might mean they're seeking drugs, etc. So there's this, this imagined figure of the of the drug-seeking patient who's, like, coming in to manipulate someone into giving them something. Um, and instead, the found, fundamental assumption of all of this, of this is, of course people are suffering, and of course they have pain, and of course they want to figure out how to not suffer. That's just what humans do, at least in this Buddhist framework. So it, there's a... There's a it, there's a way in which somebody coming in and just saying, oh my God, you're having pain. Yes, this <laughs> is totally real. And of course you want to try to get out of it. That's the, that's the whole nature of the beast. And let's go from there and talk about what is the best way to do that. And maybe the best way to do that is not about trying to get to zero out of 10. So what is that conversation that you have with patients about it? How, how, does, how does that go? So usually, you know, now now we're into my practice in the U.S. and um, the, one of my favorite things is weaning people off of their opiate pain medications. Um, and I say favorite because um, I'm, you know, I'm currently practicing in Southeast Michigan, and I think that this part of the country is seeing the same 
pendulum swing that most places in the U.S. are, mm-hmm. where there was a phase where we, the medical profession was giving out very large amounts of narcotic pain medication, and then the pendulum swung the other direction. And the result of that, rather than being an honest and self-critical understanding of the role that medicine played in generating that problem, has been a really brutal blaming of patients that they are addicts coming seeking things, and people are just cutting patients out of their practice completely. They're saying, I never liked this, this was always uncomfortable, and now the data shows that it's bad, so I don't prescribe any narcotics. And so there's this mass exodus of patients who have essentially been abandoned by the medical system that created their problem in the first place. Um, And so word gets around a little bit about people who don't do that and will continue to see patients. I mean, even, even from the standpoint of people who have bad diabetes and hypertension and kidney failure, and they're now being cut out of all health care because of this one problem that's not even particularly their fault in the first place is just very upsetting to me. Yeah. Um, so, so even, you know, finding a clinician who will just recognize that you're dependent on this medication and not kick you out or put you in a category of addict and then take care of all of your other medical problems is becoming difficult right now. Um, so for me in my practice, the word has gotten out that I am comfortable with that and so I have, am getting a lot of people who've been on very high doses of narcotics started by other providers and then um, have been doing a patchwork of things, some of them acquiring their meds from the street, others just being in lots of pain because they've worked precipitously tapered off instead of slowly tapered off. Um, And so the reason I say it's my favorite thing is that um, creating that alliance of recognizing that somebody's in pain and that they're suffering and that they're trying to not suffer and that that's why they're looking for these medicines, Um, but then being able to talk about how um, those drugs aren't solving the problem either. Um, is something that I think really resonates with people. So folks who are on, you know, 300 milligram morphine equivalents a day of pain medications and they're coming in and saying, I'm in pain, I need more, it's a pretty easy leap to say, okay, you're telling me that this is not working and that we need a totally new strategy. And so I have that conversation. I introduce the idea of not getting to zero out of 10, of incorporating a little bit of pain into one's life, of trying to work toward suffering less rather than just having less pain, which involves a lot of stuff that is beyond the bounds of just the part of the body that is the focus of the hurt. And it's about people's lives and their work and their social relationships and the stuff that they do that they find meaningful. And, um, so if I can zoom out of the focus on their pain and the, tri- the attempt to annihilate it completely and focus instead on their overall suffering in their life that is really multifactorial, people really seem to get on board with it. Mm. Um, and it seems to resonate where people, people feel like they've been treated like an addict, they feel dependent on the medicines, they're still in pain. Um, and so it can really resonate that it's time to feel empowered in that space again instead of just feel like they're chasing the, the short-term solution to it. Right. I want to go back to what you had mentioned earlier about how your research in Thailand helps you 
has helped you think about the difference between pain and suffering uh, and what that means and the idea that, that pain may have a purpose for some people. Um, so one distinction that uh, many of the people I worked with in Thailand made was about the difference between pain and suffering, which I think exists a little bit in, in the West, in Christian traditions, and in um, but it was it was it's a, a very core part of Buddhist teachings, for example, and and how people thought about life in Thailand. And the idea goes like this: um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Mm. And the reason is that bodies. Hurt. They're designed to hurt. There is hurt that is in them. And so do minds, actually. Minds are designed to worry about things. Evolutionary history has brought us a whole package of tools, some of which are unpleasant, like anxiety and fear that help keep us safe. So the, the, the human is made up to have all of these unpleasant inputs. But the suffering that comes from them um, is is a state of mind that can be altered. Um, and some of that has to do with trying to make those unpleasant things go away. And so people would talk about this sort of abstractly in Thailand, and I it sounded very metaphysical to me and philosophical, and I didn't know much what to make of it until I was taking care of people at the end of life. And... I had a series of people that I spent time with who decided not to use any opiate pain medications through their metastatic cancer experience. So there was one woman who had pancreatic cancer that was locally invasive, and she was very jaundiced and had, as we know, acute and chronic pancreatitis are very painful. Um, but sometimes pancreatic cancer cannot be but she also had metastatic disease to bone that I think it created a lot of pain in her world at the end of life. And she decided not to use any opiate pain medicines. And the reason was because um, if she were able to sit with the pain and not try to push it away and not try to wish that it weren't there and not try to imagine a future where she was with or without pain, but where she could just be with it, then she didn't suffer from it. Mm. And she felt like um, when she took morphine, which is the main drug that they had available um, for her at the time, when she took morphine, although there was discussion of a fentanyl patch also, it ruined her ability to fully concentrate and be present in the moment and her focus started to slip, and she said the following phrase, which is, the morphine made me have less pain, but suffer more. Hmm. Also, when I would talk, you know, I was in doing interviews, and I would interview her, and when I interviewed her, she would have quite a lot of pain because she wasn't sitting with her pain. She was focusing on my questions. <laughs> so we would, we would, I had to decide how ethical that felt, but she, she, she wanted to do that. So, um, the idea being that pain and suffering aren't the same thing. So that goes back a little bit to what I was talking about with my 
practice around pain in the U.S. that if you, if people can start to see in their own lives how pain and suffering aren't always the same, then it helps to loosen up their their one-to-one identification with pain as the as the pure evil in their life. Um, mm. So rel- related to that, for folks in Thailand, and now we start getting into territory that is much less familiar here. Um, but related to it was uh, an understanding of the world as put together through karma, which is the Buddhist and Hindu, although it's different in, in each of those religions, but it's the understanding that everything that happens in the universe is the consequence of something else. So it's basically just a cause and effect kind of model of both the physical world, but also the metaphysical world, which means that um, a moral action will generate a positive consequence at some point, somewhere for someone, whether it's the actor or not, is not totally clear. But it's like doing something good like puts a ripple out into the world of goodness that will have effects on other things. And then the same thing is true of doing something immoral. Mm. And because of this, people um, felt like their illnesses were the result of some past action of their of, of their own. And often people knew exactly what it was. So mm. I took care I took care of a uh, a man named Mahu, or I felt I spent a lot of time with him, and he had rectal cancer that was also invasive and eventually metastatic and um, I would have thought a very painful and debilitating thing but he was always in really good spirits and I and um, interestingly he also didn't know his diagnosis or prognosis which is something else we can talk about that is interestingly different from here but when I asked him why he was always in such a good mood he said it's because this disease is um, is a, a, a karma master. And that's the word that I've used to translate this Thai phrase, which is Jiao Gub Nai Wayne, which means like the master of a karmic debt. Mm. Meaning it's some being that one wronged in the past that has come back to work out that old grudge. Mm. Um, and when I was sitting with him, I. And he told me that, I learned that concept, and he taught me about it, and then, you know, I thought back to Catholic patients I'd taken care of in the United in the U.S. who felt like they were being punished by God, and I didn't think of that as a positive, <laughs> a positive predictor of, of, of having a good mood through one's end of life. Um, and so I asked him that. I said, why is being punished by this old force or this old being something positive? And he said, this is my chance to work out this old relationship and to ask for forgiveness for the things I've done. Huh. And he said, um, I, know who this, I know who this is coming back for me. Um, it's the water buffalo. I was a water buffalo farmer my whole life. And last week when I was in the hospital, 
Uh, I had a nasal cannula in, and every time I turned my head, it pulled on my nose, and it made me sneeze and cough, just like the rings that I used to put through buffalo's noses and pulled on them to, to direct them in the fields. And he said, um, also, I used to ride the buffalo all the time, and now my legs are bowed outward, and my hips and my knees hurt. And all of that is me paying for the way that I treated buffalo my whole life. And so now this is my chance to ask their forgiveness, be kind to them where I wasn't before. Um, and the woman who I took care of who was meditating her way through her pancreatic cancer, she knew she had cancer. Um, and she and she at one point it was on the table whether she might want to have surgery to debulk the tumor. It turned out she couldn't because it was wrapped around a blood vessel. But um, when she was thinking that through, she said, um, she said, why would I want to do harm to this tumor? That's what caused this problem in the first place. If I go in there and just cut it out and destroy it, then I'm just re- making this problem all over again. So instead, I sit here every day, and I send love and kindness to this tumor, and I ask its forgiveness for whatever I've done to it in the past. Um, and so she had a relationship with the tumor that was a character in the scene, and it was a character that needed to be loved and taken care of. Um, and it was just this unbelievable pain control yeah. <laughs> or or um, source of meaning that helps people really cope and um, make sense of and then have a really clear strategy for how to move through their illness. That's incredible. And, you know, that's one of those things that I, you know, I haven't yet, it's one of those things that really transformed me learning about it and watching these people do it, um, but I haven't figured out how to incorporate it into my um, practice here because it's just, A, a karmic way of viewing the world and mm. reincarnation and these beings coming back and your body not being entirely your own but being part some other creature that you've gotten linked to through this things you did in the past. I mean, all that is so is so foreign, and I think a lot of what people deal with here is um, just a lack of a framework like that and just feeling like disease is just awful, like that yeah. there just isn't anything good about it, and that's part of what you need to show up for. Um, and so I haven't, um, you know, that the overtones of the, Every disease, everything is a gift to learn from. Can be really, <laughs> can be really alienating yeah. and upsetting to patients because yeah. it is. Uh, it sounds like sort of a Pollyanna avoidance of the real dark stuff that happens yeah. um, in people's hearts when they're very ill. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. You've been listening to Review of Systems. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Please check our website, www.rospod.org, for more information about our guest, Scott Stonington, and links to some of his work. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and leave us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash review of systems. Or you can email me at audrey at rospod.org. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for listening. Thank you.